Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I would say equally as important as the three rate cuts we've had through 2019, just as big a change in the last 12 months, the shift in the Fed's reaction function. And I think Powell went some way yesterday to completing that pivot in the last year. Did Steve Major do okay on like getting out front of what? I think Steve Major is always doing better than okay over the last couple of years. Pleased to say he's with us in the studios here in London. Steve Major, HSBC Global Head of Fixed Income Research. Good morning. Good day to you, Steve. Good morning. Your thoughts as you reflect on Chairman Powell in the last 24 hours. Where does it take us through next year and beyond? How do you know when a central banker is lying? How his, do you know? His lips move. So, so <laughs> the, the, the point of that is that we're not going to take too much from what we're told. So for, for me, building an investment strategy around a central bank head who tells me that they're on hold isn't going to take me very far. And if I had built my strategy around what he told me this time last year, I would have been short the market when it was rallying. Right. So I'm not saying that that's the only way that we do things because it's easy to be contrarian. It's very easy to just do the opposite. It's just that I don't get a lot of guidance. I mean, he doesn't know what's going to happen. Your point about the reaction function is well made uh, because uh, rather than waiting for this grand announcement in Q2 2020 on the on the Fed's framework review, which they've already delayed once, it is instead seeping into the reaction function in real time. So we now know that when you get an upside surprise, as we've just seen, the Fed's going to do nothing. They might even cut. Challenge for me is how do you communicate that to spot traders and bond traders and others? Because it's frankly quite patronizing to explain to them that those kind of things because they're all educated to respond in different ways. So so, so, so my best uh, interpretation of all, all of this is uh, yields probably go up before they fall dramatically. Uh, I'm going to take any increase in yield from here as a buying opportunity because I think we'll end the year, end the year with lower yields. I need some tips in the portfolio. Inflation protection makes a lot of sense here. A very good diversification. Let's talk rate. about that. A call option on the inflation story. Yeah. Why, Steve? Is that market positioning or is that just you think things are going to materialise no. a certain way in the coming year? I'll, t- I'll tell you why it's a call option because if things continue like they are, which is a good possibility, then uh, each yield, each basis point yield shift in the Treasury is mimicked by the, the tip. So the tips and the Treasuries are trading tick for tick. Um, if the yields keep sinking, the, the tips are going to keep up with the treasuries. But if um, something happens like inflation was to surge, you're going to get paid on the inflation side. There's a risk to this view. It could be hugely wrong if the S&P goes down 20% because then you won't be able to sell your tips. Steve Major, <laughs> long ago and far away, um, at Credit Suisse had that beautiful algorithm where they would show a time series of interest rates and they'd show along the way how everybody got wrong. The, mu- the move was going to be to higher rates or whispers up mm. of higher Wrong, 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 wrong. Mm. Do you feel like it's the same way in this call for higher inflation? Is it just another redux of a 10-year, 12-year path? Yeah, that, 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 that is right. And uh, everyone's thinking inflation has to go up because it's low. Central banks are trying to talk it up, but they're not doing anything. There's no action, action, is there, really? In in honor of Paul Volcker, this is really important. 
is there evidence a central bank can reflate? Mr. Volcker proved we could disinflate, but is there any evidence they can lead to some level of inflation that's appropriate? Well, central bankers know they can create inflation. They know it. They have to, to print money. Now, that printing of money hasn't actually happened so far. Because, again, mainstream thinking will confuse QE with money printing Correct. when you know it's never been anything like it. So we're not there yet. But central banks know that they can create inflation. Um, and some some kind of step towards a radical government that that puts more of a constraint on the reaction function that could that could drive inflation. Steve, you're going to stick with us, and we're going to talk about the ECB in just a moment. I do want to reflect on the year we've had and the year ahead. It's that time of the year when Steve Major goes out visiting clients. And Steve Major says rates are going to go lower. And typically, you get a ton of pushback, and then rates go lower as the year grows older. Yeah. Are you finding that the world is coming around to your perspective, your point of view, just a little bit more in the last 12 months? Yeah. And how does that make you reflect on your own framework for looking at this bond market? When you've been the outlier, the contrarian voice for so long, and then the world starts coming towards you, does it make you feel uncomfortable? Yes, and the current presentation is called Straw Man, which for the American listeners, the straw man is a, f a fallacy that you construct so you can tear it down. And the straw man for me is higher yields and bear steepening. So I, I, I want to play with that scenario because that scenario has to be fully constructed because it offsets the Japan scenario, which is we go to zero and we stay there for a long time. So these two um, polar opposites are informing the current yield the, the yield level today of 1.8. Uh, and, and it's a bit, a bit inconvenient for me because I'm a bit too close to my forecast level. So I'm having to be patient. I want yields to go up so I can buy again. It was an exciting week here in London. Of course, I've done a lot. Uh, you know, we were going to go to the National Art Gallery and see the Gauguin. And then there was Arsenal West Ham. Are you going to wind up Steve Major? And, Even, and can you do this at the end of the next it segment? It was like a balanced, fair match. It was like, you know, an ECB press conference. Boom. It was a hat. Steve, what hat? Was it Arsenal was good or West Ham was challenged? Yeah, both teams are poor. And West Ham were in front for 60-odd minutes, and then, yeah. they, then they collapsed. And there's no single point I can focus on. It's like markets. You know, stuff happens. You get inflection points, and and stuff happens. <laughs> just, How do they turn it around in the sprawl of London football? I mean, what is the – I mean, Tottenham built a stadium, but they can't put a decent team in it. We've proven that. Yeah, well, with West Ham, we have to be patient. The, the difference between West Ham, Chelsea, Tottenham, and Arsenal is that we don't have that high expectations. The problem that they yeah, have – uh, the problem for Arsenal is that they expect to win things. They, they feel entitled, whereas we have a bit of fun, really. And you also have an atmosphere in the stadium, which is yeah. something these other London clubs yeah, don't, they have. don't have. Yeah. They're like libraries. If you ever make it, it's absolutely fantastic to go and watch West yeah. Ham. I've heard I watched Tottenham them, is deadly. I watched them last season, West Ham versus Chelsea. Bit of a London derby, fantastic game, yeah. great atmosphere, just phenomenal atmosphere. Yeah. This has been wonderful. Steve, Steve great Major, to see you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate you, David Bloom, and... The rest of your team's work this year. H HSBC did, did we Gen skip the ECB? Did we skip the ECB? Yeah, you know. Okay. Do you want to no, I mean, pick it up here? I, we've got like 30 seconds left. And we I can think do it we in can. French in honor of Madame Lagarde. Steve Major, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. With HSBC.
Looking forward to catching up with Frederick Ducrozet. He joins us now. He joins us from Pictet Wealth Management. He joins us ahead of an ECB news conference that begins in around about 27 minutes' time. Fred, great to have you with us on the programme. Walk me through what you expect to hear and what you expect not to hear from President Lagarde in 30 minutes' time. Well, I think it's always uh, interesting uh, for first press conference. Uh, we know a lot about her, to be honest. We know a lot about her style. We know a lot about her tweets, uh, about uh, how she tends to possibly change the ECB's communication, reaching out to the broader public. We, we know all that. So what makes it even more interesting, I think, is that most people, just like me, expect nothing new today. And yet we might still have a few surprises, or at least... We'll be focusing on what uh, Mrs. Lagarde um, uh, announces in terms of the strategy review, which is a very, I mean, strategic uh, objective of the ECB under a new management. And there might be a few surprises here or there. Fred, before the monetary policy review has even finished at the Fed, it feels like they've already adapted to what they're about to produce at some point in the future. It sounds bizarre, but that seems to be what is happening. The way they view the data has changed. They believe there's more slack in the economy in the United States. The way they will respond to the data has also shifted. They're telling us now, the chairman is telling us that inflation, when it picks up, if it's not significant, even then, even a significant move up, we're not necessarily going to hike rates even then. It's a real dovish shift. So, Fred, I'm wondering what that means for the ECB. We don't have to wait for these monetary policy reviews to start to finish. We can have a feel for what is about to happen. That's already happening at the Fed. What's about to happen at the ECB? I couldn't agree more. And uh, we know that uh, President Draghi actually was uh, uh, being criticized for that, being, uh, you know, this kind of very strong leader, um, sometimes making de facto uh, choices and imposing them on the rest of the council. And uh, the one you just mentioned are uh, clearly the same for the ECB, by the way. Sometimes I'm joking about this, but the Fed is uh, stealing a little bit from the ECB's playbooks, talking about persistent, significant increase in inflation, yeah. even though you are uh, I mean, closer to uh, uh, employment, uh, full employment in the U.S., obviously. But I, I fully agree. I think a lot is already de facto changed in, in the euro area as well. You know that uh, the ECB has only a single mandate, only headline inflation uh, closer to 2%. This might be amended, but in, in practice, we know already that the ECB is looking at core inflation, a bit like OPC in the U.S., that a uh, few changes could be made. But essentially, the same idea prevails, that you need to see a sustained, robust convergence of uh, inflation and underlying inflation closer to the 2% target over the medium term. How do you think that would officially manifest itself, Fred? Because at the moment, as you know, back in 03 was the last monetary policy review at the ECB. They interpret their mandate of price stability with inflation close to but below 2%. Is it going to be as boring as saying the new inflation targets 2% or are they going to do something more than that? I think this one is, is interesting because uh, I do expect a, a change uh, to 2%, full stop. I think anything more complicated than that is uh, yeah. it's useless, yeah. What we would say is symmetric or asymmetric. There's an asymmetric debate. I had Charles Evans at the Council on Foreign Relations four weeks ago. That was the thunderous topic for Mr. Evans of Chicago. Wonderful. Is there an asymmetric study at the ECB and within Europe, or is it, as you say, as vanilla, is 2%? It's true that when I ask uh, people in Frankfurt or in Paris, the definition of price stability can differ. So um, 13, 16 years ago, the definition and the clarification was close to but below 2%, and there is an asymmetric dimension in that. You're right. I expect this to be removed and, and changed to 2%. 
that's that, really that's important. part of the story because how you get there obviously yeah. matters a lot. Well, explain to our audience, particularly in America, explain the constraints Madame Lagarde and all of the ECB have because of the odd fiscal structure of Europe. I mean, this is not about having lunch and going on in a retreat at a castle. John, were you invited to the castle? I wasn't. For the retreat? I were didn't you? Get, I, I asked Madame Lagarde this morning. Maybe she Fred said was. invite got lost in the mail. <laughs> but, 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 Fred, this is really important. I mean, they have huge institutional constraints because of the odd structure, don't they? Yes, they do. We know all the flows. We know it's not only about fiscal policy, by the way. That's something she made clear um, when, during her hearings at the European Parliament. It's also about everything that is incomplete in the European Monetary Union. So I'm thinking about the capital market union, the banking union. Uh, it's starting to move. Lines are starting to shift, including in Germany, but it's going too slow. And if you add that to the fact that we had... Uh, austerity everywhere at the same time uh, in the euro area after the double deep recession, it's a recipe for disaster. She's been clear, just like Draghi, that we need more uh, support from fiscal slash institutional reform. The risk, uh, um, as you said, is that we're getting there too slow and that next year the first thing the ECB has to do is to ease before we get there. Fred, just a final question as we approach this news conference. Even the best of the best have come up against difficulties when they take on the role as the governor of a central bank, the president, the chairman. We saw it from Bernanke, we've seen it from Yellen, we saw it from Powell. Then things settle down. They find out that the best thing to do is to make it boring. Is that challenge the same challenge for Christine Lagarde, or can she change the rules of how to execute these news conferences? Yes, I think the, 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 the same risk applies, except that she's very experienced in that matter, even if it's not as a central banker, and as, uh, I'm, I'm quite convinced that he, she would avoid uh, the biggest mistakes. Also, I think the focus, and she's been lucky about that, about lucky uh, about the timing, uh, the growth projections, the inflation projections today is likely to remain broadly unchanged. She got time ahead of her, and the time will be spent to really reflect on the strategy review to try and bring back some cohesion and, and, and you know, unity, credibility, strength to the governing council for them to act if needed. I mean, that's the uh, question mark. If they do need to do something, whether will they cut rates again? Will they increase QE? Yeah. Will they increase the issuer limits? And those are very difficult questions in a very difficult political environment. And for that to be credible, if she needs to do more, she first needs to bring everyone back uh, to the table. And will we hear those famous words, whatever it takes? She's been reluctant so far. Fred, great to catch up with you. Frederic Ducrozet there, Pictet Wealth Management Strategist. This is an exceptionally important too short interview with Ted Alden of the Council on Foreign Relations on China. Ted, what are the ramifications if the tariffs do not click in for China? Is that good news for them? How do you gauge what happens if we don't see new tariffs uh, this, this in three days? Well, I mean, the Chinese clearly want the tariff war to de-escalate. So if the U.S. doesn't move ahead on December yeah. 15th, that's good news for China. But, but China is holding out for removal of some of the tariffs that have already been put in place. That's a big they want to go further. point in the current yeah. negotiation. They want to go further. Yeah, the talks seem to be about yeah. some kind of ratchet deal where 
the Chinese will agree to, to make uh, certain quantities of agricultural purchases. And if they meet those, then gradually some of the tariffs that are already in place will come off. So, so obviously no new tariffs yeah. is good news for the Chinese, but they want to go farther than that. What, why is this so difficult? I mean, if there's the blunt instrument of Team A wants three things and Team B wants three other things, you know, you sit down and you come to an agreement. What's the, the reason this time around that chemistry, that, that discourse is not working? I mean, I think part of it is that, that what they're talking about is a pale shadow of what the United States wanted. I mean, the Trump administration hoped the tariffs would force some real fundamental economic changes in China. And now we're talking largely about a purchasing deal and maybe a bit of investment liberalization. So there's frustration on the U.S. side. Um, the other thing is the president, you know, he's been pretty clear about it. he loves tariffs. And so he's reluctant yeah. to remove tariffs. He thinks it's the best weapon. He thinks the U.S. is winning with the tariffs in place. So the Chinese are going to have to provide something that he can at least brag about before he wants to see any of those tariffs taken off. Ted, when you look at what's happening outside of this trade negotiation between the United States and China, what you see is that a hard stance versus China is perhaps one of the only things, one of the few things that the Democrats and Republicans in Washington actually agree on, that supply chains are arguably already decoupling. We've seen that news again this week with China. We saw it with Huawei as well when they had their recent phone release. There's an argument it's likely to get worse before it gets better. And from what I'm seeing is that there's a habit of defining the current state of U.S.-China relations by wherever we are in the current trade dispute. Is that a mistake, Ted? Well, I, I actually think the bigger issue is the one you mentioned, which is, is the decoupling question. And a lot of that's happening in the technology space. Yeah. I mean, you look at the Chinese announcement this week that they're going to you know, get all foreign computers and software out of their systems over the next uh, several years. Uh, the, the recent executive order from the Trump administration for scrutinizing all foreign technology coming into the United States, particularly focused on China, uh, the restrictions on Huawei and export control. I think to a lot of extent, that's the real game. I mean, the tariffs have almost become a sideshow at this point. What we're talking about oh. is a growing technology competition between the U.S. and China. And I think increasing oh. isolation between the two on that front. When do we see a new edition of Failure to Adjust? Well, I'll probably write a, write a different book. I'm, I'm kind of looking at where things go in the global trading system, so I probably won't be quite so domestically focused. But I know I need to get another book out there. Oh, I love I'm busting talking about my chops. last one. Folks, this is wonderful to say to Ted Alden because his books are constructively and wonderfully, incredibly dense, incredibly informed. I'm busting his chops there. I'm whipping off another uh, book. Ted Alden's book, Failure to Adjust. I can't say enough about it with a broad reach of what happened to our multilateral trade of truly a forgotten generation. Ted Alden with the Council on Foreign Relations. We are in London. We're looking forward to this news conference taking place in Frankfurt, Germany, with the new ECB president, Christine Lagarde. I can tell you she has entered the room with the vice president of the ECB, Louis de Gindos. She is currently standing in front of a whole host of photographers, Tom, having her photo taken. So she hasn't even managed to sit down yet and look at her notes and get in front of a microphone. Those photos are still snapping away. I think it's the smartest press conference. John, I mean this very seriously. I think I think the the press is more informed there. There are more Michael McKees. There are more 
you know, uh, Steve Leisman and the others that ask smart, smart questions. And I think more importantly, Tom, you get some follow-ups sometimes as well. There's a dialogue there with the journalists. And I think well that's, that's evolved over time with the former ECB president, yeah. Mario Draghi. We can now cross over to catch up with ECB president, Christine Lagarde. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our press conference. Today is the first time that I have had the privilege and pleasure of sharing the monetary policy meeting of the Governing Council of the ECB. And I'm delighted to proceed now with reporting on the outcome of our meeting together with my friend, the Vice President. The Governing Council meeting was also attended by the Commission Executive Vice President, Mr. Valdis Dombrovsky. Based on our regular economic and monetary analysis, we decided to keep the key ECB interest rates unchanged. We expect them to remain at their present or lower levels until we have seen the inflation outlook robustly converge to a level sufficiently close to or below 2% within our projection horizon. And such convergence has been consistently reflected in underlying inflation dynamics. On November 1st, we restarted net purchases under our asset purchase program at a monthly pace of 20 billion euros. We expect them to run for as long as necessary to reinforce the accommodative impact of our policy rates and to end shortly before we start raising the key ECB interest rates. We also intend to continue reinvesting in full the principal payments from maturing securities purchased under the APP for an extended period of time past the date when we start raising the key ECB interest rates, and in any case for as long as necessary to maintain favorable liquidity conditions and an ample degree of monetary accommodation. The incoming data since the last Governing Council meeting in late October point to continued muted inflation pressures and weak euro area growth dynamics, although there are some initial signs of stabilization in the growth slowdown and of a mild increase in underlying inflation in line with our previous expectations. Ongoing employment work, growth, and increasing wages continue to underpin the resilience of the euro area economy. The comprehensive package of policy measures that the Governing Council decided in September provides substantial monetary stimulus, which ensures favorable financing conditions for all sectors of the economy. In particular, easier borrowing conditions for firms and households are underpinning consumer spending, and business investment. This will support the euro area expansion, the ongoing build-up of domestic price pressures, and thus the robust convergence of inflation to our medium-term aim. In the light of the subdued inflation outlook, the Governing Council reiterated the need for monetary policy to remain highly accommodative for a prolonged period of time to support underlying inflation pressures and headline inflation developments over the medium term. We will therefore closely monitor inflation developments 
and the impact of the unfolding monetary policy measures on the economy. Our forward guidance will ensure that financial conditions adjust in accordance with changes to the inflation outlook. In any case, the Governing Council continues to stand ready to adjust all of its instruments, as appropriate, to ensure that inflation moves towards its aim in a sustained manner, in line with its commitment to symmetry. Now, let me now explain our assessment in greater details, starting with the economic analysis. Euro area real GDP growth was confirmed at 0.2% quarter on quarter in the third quarter of 2019 and changed from the previous quarter. The ongoing weakness of international trade in an environment of persistent global uncertainties continues to weigh on the euro area manufacturing sector and is dampening investment growth. At the same time, incoming economic data and survey information, while remaining weak overall, point to some stabilization in the slowdown of economic growth in the euro area. The services and construction sectors remain resilient, despite some moderation in the latter part of 2019. Looking ahead, the euro area expansion will continue to be supported by favorable financing condition, further employment gains in conjunction with rising wages, the mildly expansionary euro area fiscal stance, and the ongoing albeit somewhat slower, growth in global economy. This assessment is broadly reflected in the December 2019 Eurosystem staff macroeconomic projections for the euro area. These projections foresee annual real GDP increasing by 1.2% in 2019, 1.1% in 2020, 1.4% both in 2021 and 2022. Compared with the September 2019 ECB staff macroeconomic projections, the outlook for real GDP growth has been revised down slightly for 2020. The risks surrounding the euro area growth outlook related to geopolitical factors rising protectionism and vulnerabilities in emerging markets remain tilted to the downside, but have become somewhat less pronounced. According to Eurostat's flash estimate, euro area annual HICP inflation increased from 0.7% in October 2019 to 1% in November, reflecting mainly higher services, and food price inflation. On the basis of current futures prices for oil, headline inflation is likely to rise somewhat in the coming months. Indicators of inflation expectations stand at low levels. Measures of underlying inflation have remained generally muted, although there are some indications of a mild increase in line with previous expectations. While labour cost pressures have strengthened amid tighter labour markets, the weaker growth momentum is delaying their pass-through to inflation. 
Over the medium term, inflation is expected to increase, supported by our monetary policy measures, the ongoing economic expansion, and solid wage growth. This assessment is also broadly reflected in the December 2019 Eurosystem staff macroeconomic projections for the euro area, which foresees annual HICP inflation at 1.2% in 2019, 1.1% in 2020, 1.4% in 2021, and 1.6% in 2022. Paul Sweeney in New York. I'm Tom Keene at Queen Victoria Street in London. Uh, and this is uh, a painful now. With us, our senior executive editor for economics, Stephanie Flanders. And I say so because the evening of Brexit, she had real leadership for this nation in describing what was going on the night of that referendum. At the time, I believe I saw her on ITV. And it's painful, Paul, because we can't talk about the election <laughs> today. There's some very strict rules yep. here. So, Tomorrow, we'll talk to <laughs> Stephanie Pain, Flanders Painful about it. for you, not for me, I can assure and you. And I'd even like to talk about the thinking behind it, but I don't even think that's appropriate to do. So instead, good news, there's many other things to talk about. Let's talk about the president's tweet uh, and the idea of an exploding stock market. SPX out to record highs, Dow up 150 points, very buttressed up against record highs, getting very close to a big deal with China. They want it, and so do we. I think the president's the only one who thinks it's a big deal. Am I wrong? Well, he has waxed and waned about whether or not it was a big deal or it was a phase one deal. I mean, remember back in September, he said he was going to be a comprehensive deal. Then a few weeks later, he kind of backtracked and said it was a phase one deal. But we know that whatever gets announced, it will be the biggest phase one or the biggest intermediate deal that one has ever seen. Um, it, I think it's the big reminder from the impact of this, this tweet is that so many markets and so many asset prices around the world are now resting on this narrative, this twisting narrative around um, the trade war. And specifically, we have this kind of mini deadline uh, coming up of whether or not uh, the December 15th of whether we will have um, those new tariffs uh, imposed on China after so many um, yeah. delays. Years ago, I had to read a lot on Bretton Woods. Barry Eichengreen kids me about it. And there was an ancient Maynard Keynes, knowing he was at the end of his time in Bretton Woods in New Hampshire, providing wisdom, resilience, and theory. And then you move forward to our multilateral trade experiment out of World War II, and there were others like Maynard Keynes providing wisdom and theory. The WTO is going down in flames. Where's the wisdom and theory right now? Well, I think it's a, it's a very good question. I mean, you have, um, there was John Maynard Keynes' analysis, and, you know, at that Bretton Woods conference, as you know, the big battle, one of the big battles, Huge was, battles. was about whether or not sur trade surplus countries, like China has been for so many years, um, should be uh, punished or, or pushed to, to, to adjust in the same way that deficit countries often are. And I guess you could argue, this is pretty, I would say this is a bit of a reach, but you could say if Keynes had had his way, maybe Donald Trump would not have had quite so much mileage over the last few years of the imbalances in trade between China and the US. But we're not there. We are here. 
Uh, we have seen a big change in the position of the WTO this week, written about extensively on Bloomberg by particularly our WTO reporter, Bryce Brashuk, mm-hmm. who has shown in chapter and verse how the WTO is going to be stymied now by this US decision not to approve any new judges for the appeals process. So the WTO, as we know it, is certainly is not even going to be able to play the kind of policeman role that it has played. And we are still in certain, we do not have a kind of comprehensive well, approach. We have lots of tweets and we have lots of expectation around the negotiations underway with but China. But you go to the heart of the matter. You mentioned the police patrol of it, the policing, the enforcing. I see no discussion, forget about phase one, phase two, three, four, five, of affecting enforcement that leads to mutual trust. It's like Thomas Schelling 101. It's not there, is it? And I think that was one of the shifts that we saw and have been able to report on from the beginning of this year. The way that Donald Trump presents uh, approaches these negotiations and, of course, the very different noises coming out of different members of his negotiating team at different times um, has led to this situation where there is very little mutual trust, <clears throat> where you look at these two sides and say whatever deal they come up with, if it is remotely hard to enforce or it involves remotely any kind of mutual trust between the two sides, that is going to be lacking. So I think some of the biggest discussions, certainly earlier in the process, have been precisely around the mm. enforcement mechanisms. And there's a good reason why we haven't seen um, we haven't seen serious people sign off on a deal. The market, uh, uh, 17 minutes ago, make it 18 minutes ago, flat, quiet, a bit listless. Lagarde may be moving European rates with a higher yield. Uh, and now exploding higher, SPX through to record highs. Uh, NASDAQ 100 surges 50 points, a Dow up 182, touching uh, a new intraday highs and really buttressed up against record highs on the Dow, 28,092 on the Dow. We're with Stephanie Flanders, senior executive editor uh, here on uh, the topics of trade after the president's tweet, which forced this huge move higher. And now on really the interesting moment of of Christine Lagarde at the European Central Bank. Let me just start with a general media question. Stephanie Flanders, how'd she do? I think she did pretty well. But would we have, having seen her in these other roles as finance minister for France and then head of the IMF, I'm not sure we would have expected anything different. She was, Exactly. I she strongly was, agree with she that was statement. Measured. She also did... Um, she had she started her questions session after having read the very traditional kind of statement, which we, as we know, didn't really mm-hmm. go away from anything the markets had expected, um, to say something about how people should expect her to deal with them, how people shouldn't be hanging on every word. Yeah, so good luck with that. Um, but also that she was going to be her own person, and she took it. She took the initiative to talk about the thing that we were most interested in, which is this strategic review right. of ECB policies. And I would say shifted a little bit decided you know stamped her own mark on it by saying it was going to be extremely broad not as perhaps Mario Draghi has positioned had positioned it implicitly as just a way to kind of fix the uh, approach to inflation to handle the fact that inflation was just persistently too low she said it we would be they'd be addressing inflation the the approach to inflation but also the environment also the need for social inclusion and inequality and all these things so I think um, that was helpful for her um, maybe some of those people who really wanted this to call, to force a change in the ECB's approach, a dovish change in the ECB's approach, well, she's she's not giving that to them. And, and what's fascinating about this, and, and folks, I would suggest that uh, Christine Lagarde possibly would say, forget about the French ministry, 
Forget about the IMF or the ECB herding cats at Baker and McKenzie in Chicago a few years ago. <laughs> it was probably the toughest thing. Just in the, the two minutes, uh, one minute and a half I've got left with you, Stephanie Flanders. Are we at a point yet where I happen to be with the IMF the day Gita Gopinath was, was announced as the director of economic research or Lagarde at the ECB, where we stop worrying about women and men because these women are of such immense, ginormous competence? Where we, it, are we getting in economics, at least, to where we really don't care about the debate of more women involved? You know, I, I mean, maybe it's certainly becoming normalized and just having her there for several years is going to make a difference. But I remember even in Britain, not to talk about this election, but at past elections, we had Margaret Thatcher and there was a feeling that that had ended the discussion around having a woman yeah, prime well minister. Said, and well then, then there was yeah. another a generation went by before we had another one. So I think right. if you have to look at the next level. And I think the fact that Christine Lagarde was the only viable female choice, arguably, right. um, and we have had a head of the IMF and we had the head of the ECB, but she's the same person, I think tells you you still have to be <clears throat> concerned about it. They're quickly, the director of the London School of Economics, most qualified to be the Bank of England. Is that another name to look forward to? I think Manoush Shafiq, who is also known to any people in Washington for her time at the IMF, mm-hmm. is certainly the betting is on her if you have... Um, the kind of result that many of the polls before the polling day were suggesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there were plenty of, there were actually several women oh. who would have been extremely, the chair of the Santander, right. Sriti Vadera, would also have been very good. So that's a good sign. Well, we're going to finish up here. Stephanie Flanders with Bloomberg Surveillance. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.